0: My dear brothers and sisters and my dear young people In our last consideration of the life of David we left him on the top of the Mount of Olives On his way out of the city of Jerusalem in disgrace and shame And being humbled out of that city by his own son His dearly beloved son, brothers and sisters and young people For David did love him, he loved him deeply and yet Absalom, in cooperation with the grandfather of Bathsheba, Ahithophel, together were plotting the ruin of David. And you know, it's generally accepted that the 41st Psalm forms part of the background of that conspiracy. When we look at this Psalm, we can see that these two men took the opportunity which was afforded them in order that they might overthrow the kingdom of David. We read here in the 41st Psalm, in verse 1, that David says, Blessed is he that considereth the poor. Yahweh will deliver him in the time of trouble. Yahweh will preserve him and keep him alive and still be blessed upon the earth. And thou wilt not deliver him under the will of his enemies. And Yahweh will strengthen him upon the bed of languishing. Thou wilt make all his bed in his sickness. And there seems to be, well, and young people, in this Psalm, the indication that David was on the bed of languishing. He was in a bed of sickness. So much so that the enemies of David thought for the moment that he would never arise in a bed of sickness and the day had come when they could seize power. And so they say in 1st aid, an evil disease, say they, cleaveth fast under him. And now that he lies, he shall rise no more. And when we go through the Psalms, which are written around this period, and you look at the record itself and read between the lines it would seem that David was overtaken on this occasion by quite a serious complaint so that they were saying that an evil disease cleaveth fast unto him and he'll rise no more and there was a mad scramble for power and you know gentlemen and sisters in verse 9 of this psalm David says Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted which did eat of my bread hath lifted up his heel against me. And this we believe was a reference to Ahithophel, my own familiar friend. And the word familiar friend, part of that word, is the word Salem. He was a friend of peace. And whilst I believe it's a reference to Ahithophel, nonetheless the name of Absalom means the father of peace. And he was a friend of peace, Salem. But he had lifted up his heel against him. And that verse of scripture becomes... A most important verse of scripture because that's the verse that the Lord Jesus Christ took, my dear brethren and sisters and young people, and applied it to Judas Iscariot. He applied it to Judas Iscariot and quoted that verse of scripture that the man who partook with him of the Last Supper and had had the audacity to take out of the Lord's hand that bread of life went out in the night and betrayed him. The same as Ahithophel betrayed David. And it's ironical that Ahithophel and Judas Iscariot came to the same end. They hung themselves. And there you have in the record, in the imperishable record of the the word of God, the outstanding indictment of a man like Ahithophel, that later on, a man should come forth. More evil even than he. Judas Iscariot, of whom Ahithophel was but a shadow. And there in the word of God, they are brought together. And not only the Lord Jesus Christ, but Peter also. Applying the 69th Psalm to Judas Iscariot. Of how that he fell from his place of, of, of prominence in the realm of David, and that another to take his place. And in the first chapter of Acts, because you won't turn to it now, Peter makes reference to this fact. And in dealing with the great treachery and the conspiracy against David, both the Lord and Peter pinpoint these lessons in David's life and bring them right down to their own day and generation and show that what was happening here was prefiguring what would happen to our Lord Jesus Christ and therefore brethren and sisters is it any wonder that the Lord Jesus Christ walked about Israel knowingly knowing what was ahead of him all the time that step by step by step he perceived what was ahead of him not merely by the prophets or by Moses but in the life of David in the Psalms he had eloquent testimony as to what he should expect from men and he would meditate upon these things as he went to war, the valley of the Kidron in particular I believe he would meditate upon that and you know brethren and sisters and young people there's scarcely a day in David's life that's more minutely described I don't think there is a day more minutely inscribed as the day that he went down the valley of the Kidron when almost every step that he took is described by the record and the people he met and the things that he said and what they said in return to him. and we considered some of those things and we left him on that occasion as I said at the beginning of this talk on the top of the Mount of Olives talking to Hushai the Archive Hushai the Israelite a man from a city over on the western side of Palestine Hushai the Archite, a man whose name is eager he was eager and enthusiastic as his name implies but evidently as eager as he may have been David said that if he was to journey with him he would be nothing but a burden to David indicating I believe that Hushai was of considerable age As later on in the record, we get a hint of this, that he was with David of of old, says in the record. So he had been with David a long time, brothers and sisters, and he was described by as David's friend. And the word friend there means a lover. It's even used of a husband, an associate, a companion, someone who was deeply... Deeply affected by a personality of another person and so that was bound to them. And his shadow, the eager, enthusiastic man, was bound to David and met him on the top of Mount Olin, uh, the Mount of Olives and David sent him back that he might turn the counsel of a Hitler to foolishness. And he did. Not that he did it, but God did it in his mouth. And then, of course, we learned, didn't we, had that David, through the intelligence through Zadok and Ephiathah, through their two sons, Jonathan and Ahimaaz. They brought the news to him down at the force of Jordan that he must cross over immediately and go his way on the eastern side of the river Jordan. And David did that, and he went to Mahanaim, the place of the two camps. And there we had the whole cycle of history turned around. Absalom in Prince, in the place of fellowship. Fellowship now on the basis of his good looks and the flesh. And David in Mahanaim. Two camps, once again in Israel. And the fault was clearly on David's shoulders, and he accepted that, brethren and sisters and young people. I never questioned the fact. But he was the one, the prime cause for having two camps in Israel. That the council of Ahithophel was defeated. It was good counsel. Make no mistake about that. Rather, if Absalom had followed the council of Ahithabel, doubtless Ahithophel would have been successful. David was in no position, no position, brethren and sisters, to resist the onslaught which could have come quickly upon him, as Israel were momentarily disorganized he had power with sure but they were momentarily disorganized and Ahithophel knew that and Ahithophel also knew brethren and sisters that given time David had the wherewithal to bring Israel to rally them around himself and to present a very formidable opponent and that's exactly what happened and Hushar knew that too and when Hushar went before Absalom to make his appeal to him and to say things he didn't really believe and impressed upon Absalom that the need to wait and to be wary of David, he knew the weakness in Absalom's character. For well, that boy, as good-looking as he was, and as, as much as his hair weighed, brothers and sisters, the weight of his hair outweighed the man's courage. And he didn't have the gumption of Joab, Abishai, and a few others. And a I, I, I knew that, and he said, listen, it reminded that of what Hethephel said. I want to impress upon you, Absalom, the character of your father and you can can just picture the scene in the court of Absalom as they all in silence would have listened to Hesha and every man would have been cogitating upon the character of David you know him Absalom he's a mighty man yes he is a mighty man and you know the men that are with him Absalom and turning over in Absalom's mind Joach Jacobin Elgiza Abishael yes I know them. They're fearful men. And you know what they're like now, Absalom? They're like a bear robbed of its world. You get near them and they'll tear you to pieces. And there was deathly silence in that chorus. Yeshua delivered his breath. Given day the time, and the heart of Absalom would have melted within him. And Yeshua counseled that they get all Israel together. And it always appeals, of course, of the flesh. The weight of numbers. He said, I counsel to get all Israel together. And we light upon him as the Jew out of heaven silently, and covering completely, like the Jews, and overtaking. And if he gets into the city, he says, you shall, oh, we will get enough men to put a rope around the city, and we'll drag it into the river. And that sounded very good. But it was foolish this council, you shall it, said Absalom, didn't. And the thing that appealed to Absalom about that council was the fact that he knew his father. And there the reputation of David saved him, brothers and sisters. The reputation of a mighty man had saved him. And Absalom gave assent to the council of Yushaiah and David got the respite that he needed. And across the river Jordan he went to the place of the two camps. And there he organized his forces, and they were no match for him once he organized those forces. And we come to the second of Samuel chapter eighteen. we come to the occasion now, when the battle is joined. And in 2 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 2, that David sent forth a third part of the people under the hand of Joab, and a third part under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and a third part under the hand of Iphaei, the Gittite, the Philistine. And the king said unto the people, I will surely, surely go forth with you, my son, also. horse. And the people answered and said, Thou shalt not go forth, for if we flee away, they will not care for us, neither if half of us die will they care for us. But now thou art worth 10,000 of us, therefore now it is better that thou succor us out of the city. You're worth 10,000 of us, David. And that was the attitude of mine, brethren and sisters, that David got from his men. You're worth 10,000 of us. Absalom couldn't command that sort of allegiance. And the king gave into the pressure. And he stood by the gate, and you can picture the scene. At Mahanaim, when they marched out these three three divisions of the army under those three generals, and when David got them all together, the three of them, and stood them before him, mighty men, hard men, and so that all the people could hear him speak to them, because David wasn't going to speak to his men privately, he was going to put them under an obligation, and he wanted everybody to hear what he had to say, and in a loud voice he told them, deal gently with the young man Absalom. And the men of Israel heard that, brethren and sisters, and David wanted them to hear it because he no more trusted Joab than he trusted Ah. And he wanted the people to understand the message that he'd given them. And the record says that all the people heard when the king gave the captains charge concerning Absalom. And the very words of David breathed his confidence in the victory that would come. And you can see now where the strength lied. He wasn't concerned with Joab being defeated. He knew, brothers and sisters, that once that man went forth with his brother, and with the Philistine chieftains, and with the 600, But this fellow, although he had about 4,000 with him, didn't matter. They were no match for these guys. And he knew that Jared would quickly outwit Absalom, and he did. He drove them into the woods. Into the woods of Ephraim. where numbers didn't matter, and they were all dispersed in the woods, and he could deal with them individually. He just went around picking them off. Far too good for this good-looking fellow. Good luck will never save him, brothers and sisters. This needed courage and tenacity. They needed strength and wisdom, and Job was packed with that, and he drove them into a the wood, and in no time, they were dispersed. Until, of course, Absalom's pretty head got him into trouble, and he got it stuck in an oak tree. And there's something very poetical about that, Justice. This pretty head, these flowing locks, brethren and sisters, now tangled in the branches, and one can imagine him there, between heaven and earth, kicking and gasping for breath this beautiful boy that rose up against his father and you know the story of Joab when the messenger came to him and said look I've seen Absalom hanged in the oak. he's hanging by his head, well, why did you change this Joab I'd have given you a reward what says the man you'd have given me a reward, yes I know he said look I wouldn't care if you gave me a ten thousand shekels I wouldn't have killed him because I heard what the king said and furthermore the man said and he never spoke any more truth than this he said I know what would happen Joab if I killed him the king would command you to kill me and you wouldn't hesitate (laughs) and that's what he said to him you wouldn't hesitate you'd be down on me like a pack of wolves and he knew it too and so Joab would and so Joab says to him get out of my way verse 14 of this chapter says he says then said Joab I may not carry thus with thee. I may not carry thus with thee. But in the revised third version, they were that I will not waste time with the likes of you. As if to say, well, look, get out of my way if you are killing me. A lot of rot. All this business, this emotional business about the attachment of father and son. That boy's a traitor. So as was concerned, brothers and sisters, it all added up. Two and two made four. He had an affinity with Absalom. He'd brought him back from Gesheh. He was the one that went to the king and got him out of in his own house. But that was one thing. This was another. Now Absalom was a traitor. He was a traitor of the king's cause. And as ruthless and as bloodthirsty as God may have seen, brothers and sisters, this man was not wanting in wisdom. Make no mistake about that. And there were several things which the indicted David where he was not entirely wrong. And this was one case in point. What do you think Absalom would have done had he gone back into that kingdom? Probably got his hair turned. And started another revolt. And Joab knew that. But you see, David was carried away. And from this moment onwards in the life of David, brethren, sisters and young people, you see the kingdom running down a bit. It runs down quite a bit And Joab finds in the end, but he's got to take the reins of government virtually himself. Why? Because David had committed adultery and murder and he could never forget it. My sin is ever before me. My sin is ever before me. And it clouded his judgment. It clouded his judgment. He couldn't handle people like he used to. No longer could he take men like Rakeb and Bayana, cut off their heads and their feet and hang them over the pool of Hebron and act as supreme justice. No longer could David do that. He let them all off. Ziba, Shimeon, Absalom if he would have. he let them all off. What for? The ruling But if he judged had no such moral scruples. He wouldn't care what he had done wrong. To Job, a right was a right, a wrong was a wrong. You forgot what happened yesterday, and you dealt with the matters as they stood today, and he was in war. Get out of my way. I will not waste time with the likes of you. And he went and he plunged three darts into him. These darts, by right the way. Why would Job use darts? Seems to be, brethren and sisters, in those days they used to have a darts, which they always used to sharpen on one end. The king used to sharpen his spear on one end because he could invert it stick it in the ground and be a sign where he slept. But these stars were always sharp on one end for various reasons. They had different purposes with them for goading their mules and so on when they were riding them. And it seems that in Jared's hurry that it's all he had was these sharpened safe. He didn't have these weapons of warfare with him. Perhaps he was supervising the whole battle and wasn't worrying about fighting himself personally so this is all he had so in his haste he grabbed these three staves which are sharpened on one end and they wouldn't all, all together be that sharp either and he drove them into the heart of Absalom while he hung in the oak didn't kill him life still was in him until his arm of encompassed him about and flew him and they dragged him down out of that tree and look what they did with him as he turned the page Or verse 17, and they took Absalom and cast him in a great pit in the wood, and laid a very great heap of stones upon him, and all Israel fled every one to his tent. And then it goes on to speak of how Absalom in his lifetime had taken and reared up for himself a monument. But you see, when you put those two verses in, in their context together, in conjunction with each other, Absalom had made himself a monument in the king's dale to remind himself of the great occasion when Melchizedek met Abraham that he might be remembered for that incident but all that he got in the finished version was a heap of stones. And you know a heap of stones anybody who was buried under a heap of stones was buried under a curse. For so time and again this is the symbol of a curse in the, in the scripture. Do you remember Achan? They stoned him to death. And as each man threw his stones so the stones filled up and he became a heap of stones. A symbol of a curse and there was Absalom under the symbol of a curse. Whereas he would of course die with a wonderful monument above his grave but he was not destined for that destiny no God swept him out of the way where is his long hair now brothers and sisters and young people where is his good look where is his sparkling personality where was under a heap of stone. and that's where we're all going that's where we're all finished in the grave ultimately if we by the power of our own personalities we think can sweep out of the way opposition and become great men in Israel we'll find ourselves hanging in an oak. That's not literally, but we'll find ourselves at the same end as, Abs- as Absalom. And that'll be the end of all those who would try and usurp power because they think that they are a dandy and a cutting above everybody else. Because they've got something according to this body or this flesh which appeals to people. And that was the end of that young stuff so. And then we, then we come to a very touching incident. A very touching incident. The time came for that message to be taken to and here comes the character of out in the most eloquent fashion as well as the character of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And as they gather together in the wood of Ephraim, frame and the message was going to go to David we read in verse 19 of Zadar, that Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok said let me now run and bear the king's tidings, so that Yahweh has avenged him of his enemies. And Jeroboam said "Ahimaaz, you want to run? I don't think you ought to run. I don't think you ought to go. Because he said, um, Thou shalt not this day be a tidings, because the king's son is dead. Now note that he may have heard him so that. So there's no question in this record that he may have knew that Absalom was dead, because Job told him that he was. Why wasn't it then that he may have couldn't bear those tidings, but it was interesting. Because Job knew him, how he knew the son of Zadok, and he knew what sort of a man he was. He was the son of a priest, and you know one of the qualifications for the priesthood is that he's got to have compassion. This was an element, a fundamental thing under the law, as it is under grace. That anybody who aspires to the priesthood has got to have compassion. And this boy, the son of Zadok, was noted for his compassion, and Jared knew that. But this is a moment of triumph for the mighty Joe. He's killed Absalom. And he's not going to spare David anything. No, fellow, you're not going to run. These tidings in your mouth won't sound good. The king's son is dead. Hey, you, yes. Cushai. And this word Cushai, in verse 21, then said Joab to Cushai, go tell the king what thou hast seen. The word Cushai is a proper noun. It's not the name of a person because the word is really an Ethiopian. So God turns away from the son of Zadok, a man who was noted for his compassion, for his gig away with people, and he swings around and says, Hey you, this Ethiopian servant, you lose. Go and tell David what you speak. Let the be arrogant in man. And away he went. And the summer grader, Himaeus, said in verse 22, he said, yet again to Joab, But howsoever, let me, I pray, thee also run after Cushon. And Joab said, Wherefore wilt thou run, my son? Seeing that thou hast no tidings ready, or as the Revised Standard Version puts it, Why will you run, my son, seeing you have no reward for your tidings? The tidings are heavy, Himaeus no good you running where were you go this is not the sort of message that you want to deliver it won't do you any good to deliver a message like this. you're too soft for that sort of a thing let that Ethiopian tell him and he'll tell him bluntly without any feeling what did the Ethiopian care, he was a servant as he was described later on he was a servant of the king, that's all he was he wasn't a companion in arms he wasn't a fellow soldier. He wasn't a priest of Yahweh. He was a servant of the king and a servant of the king only. And that's all he was. And picking picked him out at random and said, You don't kill him. And what Yahweh wanted that to tell him was exactly what had gone on. As if he was saying to all Israel, You heard what David said about Absalom? Now I've killed him. So what? Let him tell it. See what I can. But finally the son of Zadok prevailed. And Yahweh said, Oh, well... What's the, what's the difference? You go, you run. And he ran, doesn't he, sisters? He ran like he'd never run before. And there's a wonderful character, the son of David. What could he do? The boy was dare to know that it was break David's heart, but at least he could soften the blow. If he could do something for his king, he would do it. And that feeling turned him upon the wings of the wind, and he went by the way of the plane. He took a different, a different route than that Ethiopian, and the Ethiopians were noted for their fleetness of foot, and he beat him. And as David sat between the outer and the inner gate of the city, and the watchman looking down over the plain of Jordan, he saw a man running. And he called back to David. A man alone, David said he's got good tidings. could he did, because if a man's on his own, it's good tidings. If you see a whole heap of men running, that's bad tidings. <laughs> so he said he's running alone, it's good tidings. And the king said, who is it? Ah, he's a good man. Now David recognized straight away in verse 27, he is a good man he said at the end of that verse and cometh with good tidings and you know your heart bleeds for the son of Zadok brethren and sisters and I keep calling him the son of Zadok get the point that's what we're called in the book of Ezekiel the sons of Zadok and your heart bleeds for this boy as he came there because all he wanted to do was to, to suffer the impact he knew that Absalom was dead Job was told him and he came there and the first thing he tried to do to, to David was to bring out the blessings of Yahweh to try and show David that what had happened that day was a blessing of Yahweh so that this is the first thing he does Blessed be Yahweh thy God which has delivered up the men that lifted up their hand against my lord the king but so the king wasn't interested in the outcome of the battle he never doubted that what about after and he may have said there brethren, and he says, wondering what he could say and he said look uh, I saw a great tumult I saw a talking I saw a great tumult but i I don't know what it was all about, but he did. Because God told the king's son is dead. And in his embarrassment, in his desperation, he tried to ward that off, and as he was doing it, he turned aside, and at that moment, Kutosh came running in, and he blurted out, he's dead. And you can see the difference in the characters, can't you? And you can see their affinity to the king, you can see the cold blood of God making the most of the occasion. And there was a man who tried as best he could to alleviate the suffering of the king. But to no avail, O my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, with God I died with thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. And that voice was echoing around that city, bringing a call of gloom over the city of Mahanaim to camp. So much so, that David's weeping could be heard throughout that city. And as the men of Judah came back from the field, we read in verse 3 of chapter 19, and as the people get them by, and all the people get them by stealth that day into the city, as people being ashamed, steal away, when they flee in the battle, and you can see them coming back, soft footed, through the gate, not making a noise, perhaps holding your arm as so it wouldn't crack and all you can hear is the wail of David, O oh, them my son, my son, my son, my son, O oh, excellent, my son, would God i died for to be, oh, my son. And the people creep into the gate. The atmosphere was built up there until Jared came. And we read in verse 5 the power that Jared exercised. And Joab came into the house of the king and said, Thou hast shamed this day the faces of thy servants. And you know, there was an element of truth in that, brethren and sisters and young people, because David had. Those men had gone out and jeopardized their lives for the king. And you see what was happening now. David was so overcome, not only with his paternal affection for his boy, But perhaps because of his own crimes, he could no longer speak like he used to. He could no longer accept the fact that that boy was a murderer, murdered his own father Ammon. He was a a traitor to the cause. But he'd done everything wrong in the sight of Yahweh. But these things didn't make any impact upon David. All David could think about was my sin is ever before me, and that He loved that for and all David wanted to do on every hand, everywhere was to extend mercy, mercy, mercy. And it's an excellent thing, but it can sometimes overbalance your better judgment. And on this occasion, I believe the Judge spoke a lot of truth when He said in verse six that David, He said, "You love your enemies and hate your friends. For Thou hast declared this day that Thou regardest neither princes nor servants. For this day I perceive that if Absalom had lived." And all we had died this day, then it had pleased thee well. And there was a probably another element of truth in that. And so we read in verse 8 that the king arose and sat in the gate. And the people filed out past him. And he honoured them and respected them for the way they fought for him. You know, it wasn't finished. It wasn't finished, brothers and sisters, because we read in verse 13 that David said, Say ye to a matter. And Amasa, of course, was the cousin of Jad, another nephew of David, by a different woman. And he says, Art thou not bone of my bone and of my flesh? God do so to me, and more also, if thou be not captain of the host before me continually in the room of Joab." And that was a stupid and foolish thing to do. And you can see now, brethren and sisters, the way that David's mind was a little bit unbalanced because of what he had done in the case of Bathsheba. And the kingdom was running down. And this was one of the chief reasons, I believe, While David poured out his heart on the yellow in the finish, praying for the coming of the Messiah, because he couldn't handle these situations. Because sin had blighted his life. It had taken the sting out of David. It had removed the power in him to exercise true judgment and justice. And he was overcome by emotion. His He said a judgment was overcome. And you imagine what he'd done on this occasion. He goes to Amasa. Now this man, now look, this fellow had been the captain of the host with Absalom. Now this is an incredible thing that David should appoint him on, immediately in the room of Joab to be captain of his host. And that, brethren and sisters, was not wisdom. That was not wisdom. Joab quickly corrected that one. But it was not wisdom. And what do you find a master doing? We learn that there was a great fright in Israel. We learn, brethren and sisters, there was a great fright in Israel. And David was appealing to Judah. He was appealing to Judah and Israel to come back to him at this day. And when Israel revolted again, he sent Amasa out to quell that revolt and gave him a certain time to get the army together. The days, the time ticked by, the hour come and Amasa was nowhere to be found. He was incompetent. And that's the sort of idiot that was in charge of Absalom's army. No wonder Joab beat them. He was incompetent. Until David turned to Abishai and said, you get them ready still leading Joab out of it, he hated him. And we read that Abishai went and Joab's men. and us have a record of food. And Abishai went and Joab's men. And of course Joab sword accidentally fell out, when he was going to meet a And in one stride, as he picked it up, the greedy brother went straight through him. He quickly corrected that error. And he was once again the captain of Yahweh's army under David. But it shows you doesn't, it doesn't insist it. The awful consequences of that sin of David. Oh yes, his character was being formed all right, but look what's happening to the kingdom now. Because the power was taken out of David's hands to act as he knew he should have acted. But he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. And if David had a rule any longer than he did, then that could have come to disaster before it passed into the hands of Solomon. And Solomon did all that David should have done. He corrected all the errors that David left undone. And he, he corrected them and put that kingdom on a different footing. But it shows you, doesn't it, the consequences of sin. And this is what we ought to be careful of. And of course the time came when David went back. He appealed to Judah, and in verse 14 he bowed the heart of all the men of Judah, even as the heart of one man. And the king returned in verse sixteen and came to Jordan. And in verse 16 Shimei comes out, the famous man. And this time he's got a thousand men with him. And he comes up to David. Oh, look! I, I was a naughty boy. I, I, all that cursing, you know. I don't know what's to, to me. I, I shouldn't have gone on like that. I, I've sinned. Look, please forgive me and have a share. i living him. with. Forgive him. Thinking of the occasion, brethren and sisters, when that famous man of Benjamin. His heart was no different now than it was then. Given the same opportunity, he cut David's throat. Have a show I knew that. And abashar said, listen, you forgive him. It's foolishness. Let me handle it. What have I to do with you? He's done to do Again, he said, let him go. And he went by, brothers and sisters, back into the kingdom, a thorn of the flesh. Down came Zeba, the servant of the, of the village. He got away with it too. All the lies that he told about his lord, the lame young fellow. All the lies that he told about his... He got away with it. And he went back into the kingdom. And then David met Mephibosheth. He came out to meet David, not with the force of Jordan. But when David got to Jerusalem, he came out. And and then David saw the reason why Mephibosheth never followed him. And he stood there aghast at this young man. But he'd never cleaned himself up. He'd never changed his clothes. And he'd never dressed his lame feet from the day that David went out of Jerusalem. And there he stood, an absolute shocking, and appalling sight of humanity. Just standing there, and David did one glance could see, Brother sisters, that a seed of zebra, and the reason why that poor fellow could not follow him out of Jerusalem. And he just said to David, Look, I'm not going to make any issue about this, David, I'm just telling you what happened. And all I can say is, you've been so good to me in the past, that whatever you wish to be done, well, as far as I'm concerned, leave the matter there. And I believe that in the record, when it's read correctly, as the original would have it, that David did restore to his former position and gave him back half of his goods and put Judah under him once again. And so the king was back in Israel. But you know, brothers and sisters, the witch has not been healed. And we read in verse 40, at the end of, the, of that verse, that all the people of Judah conducted the king and also half of the people of Israel. And in all with him, all the people of Judah and half of the people of Israel. And in verse 42, and the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is nearest kin to us. Wherefore then be ye angry for this matter? And in verse 43, and the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten parts in the king. And the end of that verse says, And the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. And there was an advice half of Israel came all of Judah and Judah's saying we're his king. Kin. you're not as close to him as we are that's nothing to do with it we've got ten parts in the king and there was a, a bickering and arguing brothers and sisters the ecclesia was still divided there were still two camps the sword shall never depart out of your house and the awful condemnation of Nathan was to have its effect the sword shall never depart out of your house and there David stood at the swords of Jordan listen to this he was king once again and you can imagine, brethren and sisters, that when a man like David comes back and he just says to Jimmy, all right, I'm not going to kill you. I'm king today. Why should I kill anybody? Says to all right, look, okay, you said this. Be, let these things be, be, be as they were. Back you go. And sort of indiscriminately forgives everybody, wouldn't handle Absalom. You can imagine when the people saw the relaxing of the of the justice of God in the hands of David that this became an opportunity for people to bicker and argue there was nobody there now to stand over the top of them and say now listen i have got a of this nonsense either you get together or I'll put the whole layer under the sword and David could have done just that with his 600 men but instead of that they saw the weakness of the king and there was this bickering and arguing as always happened when there's a relaxance of principles of justice and there happened to be there a man the gelised Another Benjamin. And he blew a trumpet and said, We've got no part in David. All is out of your tent. And the cleanser was stood again. And away went Sheba up north to lead another revolt against David. it was on that occasion that David sent a matter after him. Wasted his time, so Jazz flew him and got him out of the way and went after the Sheba himself. And went to the city up there of Beth Bethmahacah and brought the, the um, the army of David to the walls of that city and said a woman had brains enough to ask Jehovah what he was about and he said I want that man Sheba or I'll put that city in the dark and they threw his head out and that was the end of that revolt and back come David and Jehovah's returned of the king to Jerusalem and then we have the second of Samuel 21 more trouble I'm not going to deal with these chapters in detail we'll move a little bit quickly now because these are incidental with the great things in David's life of Samuel 21 more trouble there's a famine in the land what's the cause of it? well the cause of it brethren and sisters was that Saul had slain the Gibeonites and the Gibeonites were under the oath of Yahweh to be protected because Joshua put them under an oath that he would protect them and he had to honour that oath Saul didn't honour it so seven sons of the house of Saul died five of them were the sons of Nebat the oldest daughter of Saul who should have been David's wife but his foolish king Saul said Oh, I'm on the promise. Why should I give that? my oldest girl, to this little slip, slip thing? And I envy him. So I'm not going to give him Mirab. And he gave it to a man called Adriel. They lost five boys. They hung him up to a piece the rock of Yahweh because Saul had slain the enough. That's how that marriage ended. Anyway. And that's what the 2nd of Samuel 21 was all about. And in more trouble from verse 15 onwards. The Philistines come back into the picture. They can see, brothers and sisters, that the kingdom of David is weakened. They can see the kingdom has not the hole that he used to have. So back they come. And David goes into the battle. And a mighty giant is assigned by the Philistines to take care of David. And David, courageous as ever, is locked in mortal combat with this giant. But verse 17 says, Abisho, the son of Zeruiah, suffered him. The word indicates that he got between him and David. David and the giant. Imagine Abishai in this battle, brethren and sisters, seeing this mighty giant, and David not the worry that he used to be. Age now telling on him, brethren and sisters, oak telling on him and the giant about the killing. And Abishai warding his way between the pillar. Vroom, And down he went. A mighty man, Lord to the very ends. There's something great about these fellows, loyal to the end and courageous to the extreme. And then the record goes on to say the, the Philistines came back again and again so the, the enemies of David that he first conquered are back again, brothers and sisters, all because he despised the commandment of Yahweh. The sword will never depart of your hand. The second of Samuel twenty two deals with one of the Psalms of David, a combination of psalms, really, of how he's been delivered from all his enemies. And the second of Samuel twenty three deals with the the last words of David and the list of the mighty men that he had under his command. And then finally, in the 2nd of Samuel, chapter 24, more trouble. More trouble in the land because David foolishly orders the people to be numbered. And Job protested for them in in verse 3. He said unto the king, Now Yahweh thy God, and unto thy people, how many shall ever they be? And hundreds from and that the eyes of my Lord, the king may see it. But why does the Lord my king delight in this sea? And there is David, brothers and sisters, in the weakness of the moment, having trouble upon trouble. He's back in the land as a division. Sheba grabs hold of a section of the people and says, we've got no part in David. David deals with him. No sooner he's off the scene. And there's a famine in the land. And Yahweh plagues because of the matter of a him David's heart sinks more trouble. That's the thing. No sooner than that the way to the Philistines, Paul and again, David to be killed in battle, saved by the skin of his teeth, and no sooner this is off the scene, then again the anger of Yahweh is back, brethren and sisters, and now David himself, fearing for his life, seeing that the enemies of Yahweh are on the resurgence again, and the kingdom is slipping out of his hand, he thinks, I've got a number of people. And the man before, who had tremendous faith in God. Now, brethren and sisters, he lived under the shadow, of the crime that he committed, my sin is ever before me. And he gave his mere to the fear and trepidation of the calamity that he knew it was him to drive over the top of it. But with this sure and certain knowledge that even though these things were going to come upon him in mortal life, that ultimately he would see beyond it all of the kingdom age. And it was that, finally, that caused him to burst through this despondent period. And to see that doesn't matter what happens in all these troubles, one thing has been guaranteed is above all else, and that was the kingdom. And what, what does it matter? But momentarily here, with all these troubles coming upon one upon the other, quickly, David is is driven to this extremity of gathering to himself the people of it. Well, I got to number. And in verse ten, David cast mighty after He had numbered the people, and David said unto Yahweh, I have sinned greatly that I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Yahweh, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done foolishly. It was on this occasion, brethren and sisters, as we read in the first of Chronicles 21, and we'll take our story up in Chronicles now, it was on this occasion, when he had numbered the people the day that attempted to go to Gibeon. (laughs) having numbered the people, and having realized the error that he committed, we read in verse 30 of the 1st of Chronicles 21 that David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid because of the angel of Yahweh. And you know, brothers this is a remarkable thing happened. <coughs> But here's the story. David had numbered the people. God had offered him three things, and he'd thrown himself on the mercy of God, so that he, he threw himself upon the, the aspect of the plague. And of course, throwing himself upon the mercy of God and the plague coming, instead of being fleeing before his enemies and so on, because there was a plague rare in Israel, the king, the king was in equal danger with the people, a plague to sweep anybody in as no a sector of persons. And you know that when Joab numbered the people, he started on this side of the river, from a place called Arela, which means ruin. And he went north, came around the top of Israel, and finished up in Jerusalem. And it's rather significant that in the fulfilment of the wrath of God upon David and upon Israel, for all their wages on this occasion, that the plague should have been stayed at Jerusalem. And it would seem, although we've got no proof of it, it would seem, it fitting that that plague should have followed the course of the numbering of Joab starting with ruins and coming right around and finishing at the top of the city of Jerusalem so that one day Ornan the Jebusite with his four sons of threshing wheat on the threshing floor which they held upon the top of Mount Moriah and he looked behind him but he saw a visible manifestation of the angel of Yahweh and the, the angel standing there on the sword pointing towards the city of Jerusalem it was next and Yahweh made this visible to Ornan and David saw it and he prayed earnestly brethren and sisters for the mercy of God To come upon him, and the plague would start at Jerusalem, the city of the vision, the city of peace. And there the plague would start. And there David was told as he went past Jerusalem to go to Gideon thinking perhaps that all he had done concerning the ark was wrong this man's faith I believe at this moment of time he was all over the place he didn't know where he was he was shaken to the foundations of his faith, and he was hurrying up to Gideon perhaps to reinstate the worship there and the angel of Yahweh came between Jerusalem and Gideon and stopped him stopped him I'm telling him no David whatever may have happened Whatever the wrath of God, may how it may have been manifested in, in the various ways that it has one thing, stand sure, David, this is the place of the future temple. And it was the place of Mount Moriah, where Abraham had sacrificed Isaac. We learn that. We will turn it up. We learn that by the second 2 Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 1. But it was the place of Mount Moriah where Abraham had sacrificed Isaac and where Solomon was going to build his temple and the sword of Yahweh that had now stood over the city of Jerusalem, pointed at that hill, and he said, David, you're not going to Gibeon. No, I don't want to reinstate the law, David. Not in that sense. Although David hadn't fulfilled the law, he only did this typically. But as, as Yahweh was indicated to him, no, David, I don't want that reinstated at Gibeon. Oh, this is the place of the temple. And now, brothers and sisters, with the sword of Yahweh falling down over the, between David and Gibeon, and keeping him in Jerusalem, I believe at that moment of time, the visible manifestation of the angel, the forgiveness of God, by sparing the city of Jerusalem was the turning point in David's life and he saw beyond the present. He looked through the gloom and he saw that all the troubles that were coming upon him were going to continue. And there was only one hope left for David and that was the future. And he then, at that moment of time, he feverishly prepared. In a great thrill of excitement, he prepared for the future. And I believe in doing that he overcome all his problems and there's the asked for us and in 1st Chronicles, 22 and verse 1 we read then David said this is the house of Yahweh Elohim and so he gathered the strangers together in verse 2 he made them to use stone for the house of God he prepared iron, nails for he sent messages in verse 4 to Hiram king of fire and he got cedar with and David said in verse 5, Solomon, my son, is young and tender, and the house that is to be built for Yahweh must be exceeding magnificent, of fame and of glory throughout all countries. I will therefore now make preparation for it. So David prepared abundantly before his death. And so now, brothers and sisters, David is going to prepare for the future, and this is all he can do in the second family. As far as he was concerned, the power to rule no longer was vested in him morally. All he could have got over of the sin of fact Jesus, he could have forgotten that. He could have said, well, I've been forgiven for it, that's all there is to it. So I'll just go on my merry way now, exercising the righteousness and the justice of God as in days gone by. But he just couldn't bring himself to do it. And the power to rule, if he should, was not no longer vested in his hands. It was taken out of his hands morally. And all he could do now. Was to turn those hands in preparation for the future, and I believe that this was the turning point in David's life at the very end of his life, when he'd numbered the people, blessed the Gideon, given him the job, Shimei, everybody else. But he saw that whilst he couldn't handle those situations, one thing he was related to, and that was the future. Now all he could do then was to turn his hands to that, and he did that, and he prepared for that future. And in verse six of that book, of this chapter of Chronicles. He called for Solomon, his son. He charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. He charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel, and then he set about, brothers and sisters, in the most remarkable fashion, in the most remarkable fashion to prepare for that kingdom. In chapter 23, we read that he got all the Levites. He got all the Levites, and in verse 6, that David divided the them into courses among the sons of Levi, namely Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And in chapter 24 and verse 3, or verse 4, we read, And there were more chief men found of the sons of Eliezer than of the sons of Ishmael. And thus they were divided among the sons of Eliezer. There were sixteen chief men of the house of their fathers, and eight among the sons of Ishmael. So then David divided up the courses of the priesthood. And he took the families of the Levites, he divided them up, and he divided the sons of Aaron. He found among the sons of Aaron, brothers and sisters, that there were more at the house of Eliezer. And there was a prophecy fulfilled of Samuel. That from the house of Eli, which was the house of Israel, the priesthood would pass. And reaching even further back in history, has, the son of Eliezer, that seed a man and a woman together. Both of them together. Because they were perpetrating an immoral act. And he appeased the wrath of Yahweh. Of and Yahweh said to him because of his action in turning away the wrath of Yahweh and showing himself zealous for the cause of the truth he is giving the priesthood. And here it is. And the cycle had turned and the house of Iphanar is fading out of the picture and there's twice as many men in the house of Eliezer. And in all there were 24 of them. There were 24 causes. 8 and 16 and in the book of Revelation brothers and sisters we have the 24 elders who are going to be kings and priests and reign on the earth then in, verse, in chapter 25 amongst David's other preparations he got the singers together Isaiah, Timan and Taducan who should prophesy prophesy with hearts with psalteries, and with symbols prophesy with music tell a story and at the end of verse 7 we read that these people numbered 288. And in the book of Revelation we've got the 144,000. And this is just twice that number, if that is without the thousand, but it's 288, that's against the 144, but nevertheless, here's the, the shadow which thrown forward as a fulfillment of the book of Revelation. And what are they doing? They're harping with their hearts in the book of Revelation. They are the saints of God, and they're prophesying with music. And I believe that there will be music in the kingdom. But it means more than that, brethren and sisters. For music. Music is part of a man's soul. The Bible is full of music. It speaks of the glory of God. It speaks of the majesty of the Creator. It speaks of the extension of His mercy. It speaks of everything. And it gets into a man's being and it fills him with the songs of God. And so it's part of a man's character. So the heart is a symbol of the heart. And there we are in the book of Revelation. 144,000. The antitypical men of David here and David got them all in all of these vast preparations for the kingdom and as he prepared brothers and sisters he grew old and we come back to the first of Kings chapter 1 but in the midst of his preparations and you can imagine David's feelings on these occasions but in the midst of these feverish preparations for the kingdom old age was catching up on him he was 69 years of age and David was old and stricken in years, and they covered him with clothes that he got no heat. What a pathetic picture this is! And you can see this aged man, you know, looking at all the trouble. Seeing how they come with the presence of the moment, mumbling the people, and then rushing up to if to say, "Well, look, I've got to try and hold this nation together. Perhaps it's the Lord. Perhaps I've got to go to and then being stopped by Yahweh and saying, look, David, come to your senses. This is the throne. This is the place.'" And David sisters, not for the first time, but now realising the full impact of what he's been told and looking beyond the troubles, he sees the glory of the kingdom and he thinks to himself, well, I can affect no more in Israel. But what I can do, I will do. I will prepare for the future. To lay the foundation for Solomon, my son. And in that foundation, brethren and sisters, he saw the foundation of a greater son. No doubt about that. David foresaw the Lord always before his face, And now he's preparing for the future. And you know, it's rather a tragedy, I feel. But in the midst of these feverish federations, the king finds himself, day by day, growing weaker and weaker, as he's numbering the gold, weighing the gold, weighing the silver, getting the iron, sending messages to Hiram, ordering up the courses of the priesthood, getting the fingers together, laying down these elaborate and detailed preparations of the kingdom of Solomon, and day by day, his strength is ebbing out of him, until he finds, brethren and sisters, that it comes one morning and he not get up. And no longer can King Joseph prepare for the future. And he's as good as dead. And at that moment of time, the sword was never going to declare out of his hand. And another one of his boys thought it was time of he became King of Israel. Adon Haida. Yahweh is Lord. And he took the opportunity in this first chapter of Kings he usurped the kingdom, and in verse 5 we read, And Adonijah, the son of Haggad, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he gave it a following, amongst month soon, in verse 7, At last, at long last, Joab, the son of Zeruiah, The moment of fruit had come for Joab, brothers and sisters, he saw the king in bed. He saw him with a cold flag of flesh, no life left in him. And the great loyalty that Job had shown David, and great it truly was, and I believe genuine, because of his position, of course, but loyalty none the rest. And that great loyalty, brothers and sisters, the test had come now as to what that loyalty was based upon. Was it based upon David as an individual, as a person or was it based upon truth? And Job revealed himself for what he was, because he saw in David, brothers and sisters, the epitome of all that he admired in men. Great courage. He saw strength and courage in that man and now he saw him a cold slab of flesh in bed. And Joab's hopes and aspirations of the future, could no longer be rested on that man. And he shifted his allegiance at last and with him went a buyer to the priest of the house of Ishmael. Zadok was the house of Eleazar and a buyer to the house of Ishmael followed Adonijah. But with David, there was still Zadok there was still Benaiah and there was still Nathan the prophet in verse 8 Zadok the just one of the house of Eliezer and who was Benaiah you know who Benaiah was brothers and sisters he was the captain of the host of the Gentiles in David's kingdom and he was the man that got Joab job under Solomon and it shows you how influential David was towards the Gentiles. And Benaiah was captain of David's foreign bodyguard and he was the man who stepped at last to be the Jehovah's Jews. A man who commanded not Israel, but another nation. And there was a foreshadowing of the inclusion of the Gentiles in the hope of Israel when the kingdom was set up under the greater than Solomon. And they went down to Enrobel a spring outside of Jerusalem where there was a great rock just found in the valley of Hinnom just outside the southern walls of the city. And Adonijah invited them all down there. And they had a little party together. The climax was going to be the crowning of Adonijah. And they are going to race out of Enjol and say to the people, Adonijah reigns and the king's in bed, he can do nothing about it, I've got the kingdom. And in that moment, gentlemen and sisters, faithful Bathsheba, the daughter of the oath, the covenant, knew the promises of God in relation to Solomon. She went to Nathan and the two of them together, a few of the David. And David told them, to get Solomon, put him on his own mule. This was a symbol of the kingship. So ride through the streets of Jerusalem and go to the spring of Gihon. And where they then Rabbah was down just beyond the southern wall of the city, the spring of Gihon was just outside the eastern wall of the city, and they were only separated by a few hundred yards. And so while Adonijah is down there under the instructions of David, the people suddenly see Solomon on the well-known ass of the king. It would be known everywhere. And as they saw him ride that ass, brothers and sisters, they knew this, that no man dare put his foot across the ass of the king, unless he was commanded to do so because that was death. And they would have known that that man was told to do that it by David. And therefore they bowed before Solomon and he rode out to the spring going on, the virgin's fountain, And there he was proclaimed king. And then we read in verse 34, or verse 40 rather, and all the people came up after him, that is, after Solomon. And the people piped with pipes and rejoiced with great joy so that the earth rent with the sound of them. And a few hundred yards down the valley, and if you saw that place, you'd imagine how Adonijah would have heard this. You he couldn't miss it. But down the, as the valley of the Kidron, brothers and sisters, steep valley as it is, it is, not very deep, but it's very steep either side. with all of that on one side and the slopes of Zion on the other. And as that valley, of course, came on, and joined with the valley of Hinnom, down there was Enrogel. And you can imagine just a few hundred yards up north, as the earth rang with God save the king, Solomon. And that voice echoed down the valley of the Kidron, until it reverberated around the room in which they were gathered at Enrogel. What's that? Look that? And as the voice of the people was heard, Jonathan, the son of Ab- of Abiah, Ab- 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 burst into the room because Solomon's king. And Adonijah went for his life and grabbed hold of the horns of the altar, because he knew he was in serious trouble. And Solomon gave him a response. And then, David and the sisters, Solomon became king. But now, a remarkable thing happened. All right, Solomon's proclaimed king, isn't he? He rode upon the king's mule. The people have recognized this. He sat upon the throne, and the, the people have proclaimed him king. But you see, this was not good enough. It wasn't good enough. Paul said that there was a section of the people to recognize him as king because of what he had done. Yet, nevertheless, brothers and sisters, there had to be some authorization of this that could never be mistaken. And there's only one way in which that could be done. There's only one way in that could be done. You know what that way was? There's only one way possible, and the day that David had to be resurrected from the dead, and that's what happened, brothers and sisters. That man came back from the dead. Not literally, he was still alive. But that man was in a bed. There was no heat in his body. They couldn't get any heat in his body. He was Solomon on the throne. It was a pottery kingdom that he was on because he was only proclaimed there by a portion of the people. But all the rest of Israel, Catherine Abord, didn't know anything about this. And it had to be authorised by the king in a manner which could never be mistaken. And for the occasion, brethren and sisters, David threw back his said clothes, and he stood on his feet! And Israel fell before them. A miracle! They saw the resurrected king. Now you know we talk about the promises to David. And we say they can't apply to Solomon because it says, I will be his father and he shall be my uh, God. But the thing is, those words are applied to Solomon. We say they can't apply to Solomon because it says, when thy days be fulfilled, thou shalt sit with thy father. And I think this is a valid reason. But there was a sense, brethren, in this day, in which David did split with his fathers and in a typical way was resurrected from the dead. But well, we say that it couldn't be fulfilled in Solomon because God said, with David, that your eyes would see it. But in the first of Kings, chapter 1 and verse 48, he says, And also thus says the king, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which hath given me one to sit upon my throne this day, mine eyes even seeing it. And we quote all these reasons to prove that the promises could not apply to Solomon. But you see, brothers and sisters, we've got no need to adopt those expedients to prove the point. All you've got to do is quote the first chapter of Luke, the 31st chapter of Jeremiah, the 6th chapter of Zechariah, the ninth chapter of Amos. That's all we've got to do. And to show that hundreds of years after David had passed off the scene, the promise was still unfulfilled. But there was a sense in which that promise did apply to Solomon. I say there was a sense in which it applies because in Solomon's lifetime and in his reign there was typically set before him the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and David in a typical way rose from the dead to proclaim Solomon king and we conclude in the first of Chronicles chapter 28 with a picture of David coming out of of almost his deathbed to proclaim before all Israel the fact that Solomon was indeed king of Israel read in verse 1 that David assembled all the princes of Israel read in verse 2 then David the king stood up upon his feet and there's a tremendous amount packed into that statement and you can imagine brothers and sisters, the effort that was required for David the king to stand up upon his feet and in a symbolic sense he came from the dead to see his kingdom established and he left them in no doubt as to where the issue stood and he said in verse 5 and of all my sons for the Lord has given me many sons including Adonijah he hath chosen Solomon my son to sit upon the throne of the kingdom of Yahweh over Israel and I can imagine David saying that and you can imagine the king standing there brothers and sisters a pale weak figure a body that couldn't generate any heat and of all my sons and he's given him anything that's the boy know that about it now my argument now because the nation's hearing him talk and they're all there listening but this took almost a resurrection through this we turn the page and not only that Revenant, we turn the page and we see over on this next page what went on on that day because in verse 11 we see that David publicly gave to Solomon his son the pattern the pattern of the temple Verse 12 tells us it was a pattern that he had of the Spirit. And verse 19 tells us, All this, said David, did Yahweh make me understand in writing by his hand upon me, even all the works of this pattern. And you can imagine him on that day, brothers and sisters, bringing along Solomon, the man of peace, and saying, this is the boy, the man of peace. He had two names, Solomon did, Jedediah and Solomon. And the name Jedediah is a kindred name and the name David. They both mean beloved. So he was the beloved of Yahweh, but a man of peace. And, and the man standing alongside him was the beloved of Yahweh, the man of war. And he had the pattern of the temple, and he told the people, "Look at that pattern. The spirit of God is upon me. the anointed of God. I am. The spirit of God is upon me, and I've understood by the power of inspiration the pattern of that temple." And he publicly handed that to Solomon. No doubt about the message that he's getting over to the people. And he made an appeal in chapter 29, brethren and sisters, for the people to assist Solomon because he was young and tender. And he pointed out in verse 3 that he had said his affection on the house of God and by his very example of the people he had shown that he had been wonderfully a marvellous example of affection towards the house of God. And in verse 9 tells us that the people rejoiced so that they offered willingly, because with perfect heart they offered willingly to Yahweh. And David the king also rejoiced with great joy And then David set before them in verse 11 the very foundation of the principle of the kingdom of God. And in all that glory he said, Thine, O Yahweh, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is Thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Yahweh, and thou art exalted as head above all. Let no one run away, brethren and sisters, with any idea as to who was really the king of Israel. And David said that the victory he had gained, the majesty of the occasion, the glory and the greatness of this occasion belonged to Yahweh and not to Solomon or to himself. Let the people get that naked. And in verse 15 he says, For we are strangers and sojourners as were all our fathers. What a remarkable statement on a day like that when all the heaps of gold and silver, iron, wood, brass, and everything was there heaps upon heaps brothers and sisters preparing for the building of one of the greatest temples of all history and Solomon was there with all this tragically and he says let's get this fact clearly fixed in our mind that all this glory is Yahweh and you and I are simply strangers and strangers. We don't own a spirit not a mortal thing do we own and he said that before the people that they might never forget they forgot it all right because no freedom was Solomon's temple built and they sat down they worshipped and kissed every brick thinking that this represented their glory and their strength for the kings and they would try to get that message too and then at the end of the story we have a magnificent picture in the 22nd verse of the same chapter and they did eat and drink before Yahweh on that day with great gladness and they made Solomon the son of David king the second time and anointed him unto Yahweh to be the chief governor and Zadok To be free. And what a remarkable uh, set of circumstances we've got here, brothers and sisters. The beloved of Yahweh, David, the man of war, the warrior who had fought all the victories that led to this great moment. And here's the beloved, Solomon, out, the man of peace. And he's crowned the second time. That's significant, isn't it? The Lord Jesus Christ was called King of the Jews, brothers and sisters. And Pilate wrote that over his cross. And that was a crown. A crown put there by a Gentile who recognized that man's claims as being valid. And he's going to be crowned again as the great king, and the man of peace. And right alongside of Solomon was Zadok. And now he since the and the house of Eliezer comes into prominence. And there's a king priest. And who is he? He's Melchizedek, king of righteousness, as Zadok, Melchizedek. And there's Solomon, the man of peace, and he's king of Salem. And there we have, brothers and sisters, in made two men, the Melchizedek priesthood, king and priest, reigning over the earth of peace. And we read, then Solomon sat upon the throne of Yahweh as king, instead of David his father, and prospered, and all Israel obeyed him.